This morning, we have the privilege of finishing the book of Leviticus, 13 sermons deep on the book of Leviticus, um, and we've survived. Uh, it didn't kill the church, it didn't kill us, and it uh, made us stronger, I hope. Uh, people are nodding like, I think it made us stronger. Um, as many of you know, what happened uh, when I came here a couple years ago is I was like, I don't know what to preach on, and I know summers are sporadic, so why don't I just do the first five books of the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. So we did Genesis my first year, and Exodus my next year. Spent a year praying for the return of Christ, so that I wouldn't have to preach on Leviticus. And what happened is I got Leviticus, and I think it's gone pretty well. I'm sad to say goodbye to it. Now, one of the things that we have to do in this sermon as we wrap it up is sort of two things. One, I want to look at these passages Chris read, that, that both have this, and, and this is a theme that runs throughout Leviticus, this justice component, which is sort of in Jubilee, and then also has this, this sense in which God is wholly other. And it's not a simple thing to have this God reside in your camp, reside in your place, and have him live among you. And that, and that tension is one that we feel in the modern world. It's, it's not incidental that some rabbis will say that the Torah is the word of God, the first five books, and the rest is just commentary. Because what you see going on after you leave these first five books, particularly in the prophets and later parts of what we call the Old Testament, is you see this tension between what God is about is justice, not sacrifice. And then you read books like Nehemiah, and it's like God is about our holiness again as a people, not so much about justice for the foreign. And so this tension exists throughout the sort of whole of the Old Testament. And when Jesus comes on the scene, it's not incidental that they ask him, how do you read this? And that's where we get that famous, that there are two things, to love your Lord of God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Both quotes from the Torah. And what Jesus says is that the rest of, of these commandments hang on those things. But as we've gone through Leviticus, what we talked about is, that interesting teaching where he said, I didn't come to abolish this, but to fulfill it. What does that mean for the book of Leviticus as we study it? What does it mean for us as we've gone through it? Now, one of the things in that reading that Ryan read today that I think becomes apparent to us if we look at the book of Leviticus in its larger picture is that at the end of Exodus, the first reading that Ryan read, they can't enter into the temple because God's spirit has descended upon it. And at the beginning of the book of Leviticus, God calls to Moses, and he says, come near. Come near to me. And then at the beginning of the book of Numbers, it says that Moses is in the temple with God. And so what seems to happen in the book of Leviticus through all these commands and such is actually what happens is that they find a way to make it into the place of the divine through the instructions given here. And last week we talked about it just briefly. It's like there's an ancient structure to the way things work. I keep looking at this because... If, if, you, if you haven't been here, is that these are the titles of the books in Hebrew, which incidentally come from the first names and not first words of the book and are not called Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They're called in the beginning, um, uh, in, these is the children in Egypt, uh, Vakriya, which is this one, um, and then Numbers and Deuteronomy. So that's what those are, so that's why I keep looking over there. But Leviticus makes up the center of those books. One of the things that they tell you about when you study ancient literature is unlike us where we sort of read towards the end, a lot of the meaning contained within ancient literature is contained in the middle. 
And what you do is you walk towards it with sort of matching stories, and you walk away from it with matching information. And what the center of it is is really the heart of it. It's a hard truth for us as Christians is that Genesis, Exodus, yeah, we got it. Leviticus, no. Numbers, maybe. Deuteronomy, there's some good stuff there. Um, but we don't quite sit with either of those as well. So we only end up with the first two-thirds of this movement towards the center, and then we don't end up with anything from the center or going away from it for the most part. That being said, what the book of Leviticus shows us is that there's this opening, this meeting with the divine that happens through its pages, this, this way in which we can come into God's presence, we can come to this God who is holy of it. Now, one of the things that, that a rabbi says about this book is that it's a shame that Christians don't like it that much because it's basically their whole religion. You know, that something needs to intercede for us, something needs to be sacrificed, something needs to open up a space for us to move into relationship with the divine. In his mind, it should be finding a place within us better than it does. And, and yet, through these sermons, I think I found myself more drawn into what the book of Leviticus is about. And so this is our last Sunday sort of with that book. And so I'm going to attempt to sort of give some summary and also um, respond to sort of the two readings we had today. One thing I want to note is that if you're done with Leviticus, so is my, my journal that I keep my sermon notes in. I spilled coffee on it on the way to church, actually with today's sermon in it, so I had to redo it all. Um, but I was thinking, the divine has also told me we are done with the book of Leviticus. Um, this one will get retired with my Leviticus commentaries, and I probably won't look at it again for any number of years now. Um, and when I do, it'll just look like a coffee stain. Um, but that's sort of what we have for us today. And one of the things that comes up in this, the end of book of Leviticus, Leviticus is that we talked about a lot in Exodus, is that God is looking for a body in the world to reflect his life out. God is looking for people who are going to be claimed by him so much that they will radiate his concerns, which where we get that holiness, that justice component. But not only that, they will radiate part of who he is through this holiness. That God will call these people and they will be his in the world and that they will be representatives of the divine. Now this happens and the people agree to this and then almost exactly after they agree to this, they build a golden calf and worship that instead. That's in Exodus 34. And then they renew that covenant afterwards. And so much of the book of Leviticus is, is almost like a spinning out of that broken covenant that now there's more instruction needed to be with these people, for this God to be with them. He needs to clarify some things like, don't build a calf out of gold and worship it instead of me. Um, he needs to sort of talk to them. There was, I was reading about that this week again, and somebody mentioned that, that what happens there is like cheating on the honeymoon. Like they've just agreed to be God's people, and then not less than you know, a couple days later, they're off with this God they've made of this golden calf. But in light of that, I just want to read this passage from the Screwtape Letters about what does it mean to be this God's people. What does it mean to be that and compared to other? Now, one of the things about the Screwtape Letters is you can't just read it out loud because it's written from the opposite perspective. So when he says one of the things that our enemy is doing, he means God. Because it's written, it's a letter written from one devil to another devil on how to tempt this God. And so what he means is almost the reverse. But I think it captures what God is doing through his call of Israel, and what he wants to do through his call with the church. 
It says, on the face, uh, one must face the fact that all this talk about his love for men and his service being perfect freedom is not, as one would gladly believe, mere propaganda, but an appalling truth. He really does want to fill the universe with a lot of lonesome little replicas of himself, creatures whose life on its miniature scale will be quantitatively like his own, not because he absorbed them, but because their wills freely conform to his. We want cattle who can finally become food. He wants servants who can finally become sons and daughters. We want to suck in, but he wants to give out. We are empty and would be filled he is full and falls over. Our aim is war in a world in which the Father below has drawn all of their beings into himself. The enemy wants a world full of beings united to him, but still distinct. That what God has sort of called for his people in this book is to be a people that are, are in him and fully and freely conform to him in a way that they represent him out into the world. And so the first part of today's reading comes from this year of Jubilee. This is where this book is a justful book. It's, it, it proclaims justice. And if you've noticed, there's this repetition with this number seven. There's, I remember growing up, they were like, seven's very important in the Bible. And I was like, that's just because you're weird and you like numbers. And sorry, Kent. Kent, Kent taught math for a long time. Um, and then I went through the book of Leviticus particularly, and it's like seven keeps showing up as this important thing. And so what we've seen in the book of Leviticus is on the seventh day, they're all to rest. Not just the Jews, but also the alien, the foreigner, um, everybody in the land. That's supposed to be a justice day in which everybody can rest, even the animals. And we talked about that. But then we talked about the seventh month. And the seventh month of their year is the Day of Atonement. It's sort of the height of the Jewish calendar where the temple is expunged of all that has happened to the past year. The sacrifice of, of one of these goats and the other is pushed out into the desert. Um, and that's what happens in the seventh month of the year. What happened in today's reading is in the seventh year, they're supposed to not harvest anything, to let things just sort of grow on their own. Somebody asked me, I think it was Emily, about like, there's part of the book of Leviticus that's very um, psychologically true or just true in the world, right? And so one of the things that farmers know is that you have to sort of rotate crops and give the, the land rest. And so once that's the seventh rest year for the land is important agricultural practice. But in another sense, it represents this sort of divine blessing of the moment. It says, it says in there that what will we eat in this year and it, God says that I will cause the land to produce so much abundance in the sixth year that you'll be able to eat for the seventh year and then come back. So we have the seventh day, the seventh month, the seventh year, and then it gets to seven times seven. In the 49th year, they do the, the, the year of Jubilee. And so it's not only just seventh day, seventh month, seventh year, but the, the biggest festival comes in the seven times seven, in the 49th year in which sort of everything is reset. And so what God says is, when you get to the land that I'm giving you, what will happen in that year is sort of everything will be reset. All the debts, if you're a Jew and you've managed to work yourself into slavery, you're free. If you've sold your land, you can buy it back for a price. If you've, and this is, if you're um, bad businessly minded like I am, which means you like to think about business, but you have no 
acumen to do it, um, which is neat. I think, well, how does this work? Because like, if I can buy your land from you, let's say in year two, great. If it's year, uh, you know, 48, and you're like, want to buy my land? It's like, no, 10 cents, um, because it's about to get reset back to you anyways. And yet what God is doing here is creating this space for these people who have been in bondage and slavery in Egypt to sort of never be able to resort back to that condition again. That no matter how much debt or how much uh, ways in which you work yourself into not owning land or owning space or owning place, what happens is in that 49th year is it goes back to your family. It goes back to the people who originally owned it. So everything is sort of leveled and reset every 49 years. This is sort of the pinnacle of this book. And I think it almost flows into chapter 6 as it's the promise of what God wants for these people. These two, the seventh week and, and the 49th year, I think are almost like Eden-like promises. Is that you'll go back to being able to not working and toiling with the land. You'll go back to not being threatened by the land. But you'll go into a place of abundance with the land, of fellowship with the land, and God will provide with you. Similar to what we see in Eden, that God becomes this sort of like all-encompassing force so that they don't need to do those things anymore. And when they come out of it, it's like they've come out of the Exodus again. They've come to the land and everything is sort of replaced for them. This is a, an incredible, incredible thing that happens here. And it's the set-apartness that the Jews are supposed to model for the world. It's this, this 49th year, though, that becomes almost every, every commentary I read on it this week has, has mentioned that there's almost no evidence that they were able to practice it. It almost becomes like a future promise to the extent to which, like, this is a promise in which you need to hold on to. Because it's too hard for people. I mean, imagine our world doing something like that. Visa would have some problems coming to their stock every 49 years. So would MasterCard or every college education place that where anybody went in the last 10 years, just hold off two years, go to college, because I'll be forgiven when you graduate. Um, all these things would make it hard for us. Or, or private land ownership. Well, you have private land ownership in your family for generations, but... If you sell it off, don't worry, you'll go back to your kids or grandkids every 49 years. Like there's this promise of justice in this that is very hard for people to grapple with. One person said that, that the nature of this passage is almost like parallel to the Sermon on the Mount is because it comes so hard for us to model. Somebody strikes your cheek off the other one. Somebody takes your coat, give them your other coat. When somebody asks you to go a mile, go a mile with them. Extra. It becomes one of these very hard teachings for people to model. And yet Jesus in Luke 4, when he opens up the scroll to read in the synagogue of his hometown, he proclaims the day of the Lord. Seems like that was the reading for the day, but Jesus, more confident than most preachers, sits down and says, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in its reading. What Jesus proclaims when he comes in his person on the earth is that the day of Jubilee is being fulfilled in who he is and who his kingdom is for the world. We too are people invited into this day of Jubilee. And what does he say? To, to proclaim release to the captives, to sight for the blinds, to, to heal the lame. He proclaims that this will be a day of renewal for all people. He combines two passages from the book of Isaiah. 
but he's proclaiming release for the captive, that Jesus is saying that in me and in my kingdom and the people that will model me towards the world, jubilee will take place in their midst. This is one of the hardest parts, I think, of of being a Christian today is that we often confuse what it means to be a Christian today as what it means to be a citizen. Now, I have friends who say they're Methodists, and the Methodist church slogan at the moment is that they hate it. This is why I'm telling you this. Um, And they're Methodists, so I'm not saying this. It's like if you're that, you get to make fun of it, okay? Um, And they are that. And the Methodist church slogan is to create disciples to make the world a better place. And I think that's what we what we hear when we get to the justice passages of Scripture, is we're to become disciples to make the world a better place. And what they say is, that's so wrong, because the better place is the church. We're not made disciples to make the world a better place. We're, be- we're made disciples to make the church the place where jubilee and these things are practiced and proclaimed. So this comes to one of my favorite theologians who, who always says this line, and it really upsets people, is that the main goal of the church is not to make the world more just, it's to make the world more the world so that they know what justice and the church is when it comes in its midst. The thing is, is that most people, we read this in an article in their discussion, Watership Down, and I had to stop everybody to say how controversial this is because it rebels against much of what we think. Is Our goal is to rule and to make sure that justice happens for everybody in the land at the moment. And that that's the way it can be. And incidentally, uh, if you're thinking politically, neither one of the parties is immune from this type of mindset. They just have different priorities that they would enact to make it more justful. But really, the call is for these people, this called out community of believers, to be that. The church in the New Testament sense, Israel in the Old Testament sense, it's not so that you can gain enough power to rule. It's so that you can model something else to the world so that you can give it away. It's almost like you can't give away what you don't have, in a sense. You need to have this within your walls, within this better place that is the church, so that then finally you can give it out to the world. But we often think it's easier to pass laws than it is to model it ourselves. But the church is meant to be this justful place on earth, this place where this happens. The second thing that happens is, is in chapter 26, which is sort of the climax of this book, Deuteronomy ends near the same way, which is that you have two choices before you. There's an early Christian document I shared in the email this week that says there are two ways, one to life and one to death, and there is great difference between the two ways. Or in John's gospel, you have light and darkness, and they don't intermingle. That like the New Testament and much of the Bible doesn't have much of a problem with black and white thinking or light and dark thinking, and yet most of us, myself included, like to live in a world gray. Well, it's more complicated than that. There are two paths, one that goes to life and one that goes to death. Well, actually, there are like 17 different paths, and there are ones that go kind of towards life and one that go kind of towards death. And the best thing we can do in life is moderate the two, to find a way. Like, that's the way I think. But what Scripture is always almost proclaiming for us is you can live and trust in the abundance and guidance of God listen to him and hear his voice and and live by his commands, and that these are the blessings and the rules that come to it. Or you can set yourself against it. You can deafen your ears. You can shut it off. And what happens is is sort of these curses and things that will result from that. And the book of Deuteronomy, it's choose life or choose death is what I place before you today. 
I don't mean that to say that we can't talk about a world of gray, um, but I do mean that to say that what Scripture lays before us is, is trying to say it's not that complicated. Do you want to commit yourself to these paths, these commands that God has commanded to you, to the best that you can, or do you want to navigate the world in, in sort of an attention space and just sort of come out in the middle? It's almost like that book of Revelation thing where it's like, you were neither hot nor cold, so I spit you out. Like you're better off going for cold and you're better off going for hot. But to try and make it in the middle is not the way it's supposed to be. <clears throat> so what happens here is God lays out this plan for them. He says, you know, if you do these things, the land will be fertile. You will be fertile. You'll have peace in the land. You'll have victory, prosperity, and presence at the end. You have the presence of God with you. And the curses are longer, which represents the time that the text was written. Almost every contract we found from the ancient near world, and this is like contract language, has positives up front, and then like here's all the bad things that happen if you break this, which made me think like we should institute that into weddings. Like we only do good things. If we had some of the here's the bad things that happen if you break this, which I've just gotten myself kicked off from doing any wedding for saying that. I should have thought through that one. I like a free meal. Um, needless to say that they sort of have these curses that correspond to the blessings. It's almost like you have fertility in the land. If you don't do it, you'll have famine and defeat. If you don't do it, with you'll have peace in the land. But if you, if you do do it, but if you don't do it, you'll have drought. Victory, in one sense, wild animals will even take you if you don't oh, practice it yourself. Instead of prosperity, you'll have war. And in, instead of presence, you'll have absence, which I think is the real crux of this. And so what it says is that if you listen to me, if you follow, I will walk among you. And I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk upright. But if you listen to God, God will walk and reside in the camp among you. And through that, you will walk upright, that God will be with you as your support. But if you will not listen, you shall have no power to stand against your enemies. We get to the book of Numbers, we're going to find out that these are like million-ish people on a camping trip that are going to go take over a land. The one thing they're going to need is their God to stand with them in the midst of their enemies. Because if they don't, they're not going to last very long anyways. But there's a turn in this. that The 26 doesn't leave us there. And that, like, make your choice, and that's what you're stuck with. It says, but if they confess their sin, that God will remember his covenant that he's made. And not only that, that, it almost implies that no matter what they do, God will not abandon this covenant he's made. Promise, the promises of God, are what's going to dictate how God is going to be there in the future. No matter as much as, and this is me, um, this is just me, uh, I, I guess it maybe it's more than me since I have the mic, but when, when I talk to people about getting rebaptized, they're like, I was baptized and I chose to get baptized, and then I decided I didn't like my baptism, so I wanted to do it again. Will you do it? I often ask them, you know, similar to what this passage says, is that though you forsook God, though you turned away, now that you're willing to confess, what happens is that you find out that God was there all along. That it's not you who's coming back to God as much as God was there for you anyways. What he's waiting for is for your return. What he's waiting for you is for you to be there. 
And God will remember the promises he made to you that day, even if you scorn them. Remember the promises he made to you in Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But most of all, the promises he made in Jesus Christ that death will have no power over us. So as much as we think it's interesting the way that we can walk away and turn away and go into our own dissolution, what's actually the truth of the matter is that God renews us and God is the one who fills us when we come back. And it's God who is faithful to his covenant even when we are not. God is the faithful one through and through. And so he will remember that. And this, this confess one is similar to the one we use in our prayer of confession here. In 1 John 1, it says, If they confess their sins, God who is faithful and just will forgive our sins. And that confession we do here. It's almost like every week we too say, let's confess these things too so that God's promises can be renewed for us. Now, promises are things that don't trade well in the modern world, but God is a God who keeps promises. So if we confess, God will be there for us. So last thing, ish. Um, <laughs> summary of the book of Leviticus. Um, one through seven is how we have this meal with God, how we offer up things to God, how we commune with this God. That's sort of what starts the book. 8 through 10 are these sort of ways in which God resides within us and that this God is holy and other, so much so that as one is violated, it comes with this heavy weight of death. It moves into how do we discern between what's clean and unclean, animals and such. And what we talked about there is how God's concern for these things mirrors the way that we should be concerned for it. It almost says, if you're going to be concerned about the poor and the widow, then you can't eat animals that are unnatural and undefensible as well that these laws sort of show God's concern for the world. That's clean and unclean. And then we move to chapter 6, this 16, which is this great um, great and sad day in which that these two goats, one goes into the temple, and its blood is released to sort of make it clean again so that we can reside with this God. This happens every year. And another is sent into the wilderness. Here we most particularly talked about Jesus as the one who ascends towards God and the one who goes to the place of death to renew us. That Jesus is, is both goats, one going away so that he can bring back the captives and one going the other way so that he can bring us into communion with God. 17 contained, we didn't preach on 17, what I think is one of the most important lines in the book is for that the life of anything is in its own. Here we understand why Christians say that uh, we're washed in the blood or that Christ's blood is with us or that Christ's uh, blood means something. is because it's his life that's released in the blood. One of the things I tried to nail with that is it's his life that's released in the blood. It's, it's through his life, what he modeled, what he taught, how he lived on earth, as one fully committed to God that's released, not just his sacrificial death, which is also released. But it's his life that's spilled out so that we can live lives as sons and daughters of God as well, so that we can be adopted into the kingdom. And then we did 18 through 26. You know, 27, we're not doing, people say it's just an addendum. One commentary said it's not, and so I went with the majority. It happens. Um, 18 through 26, though, there's this call that you will be holy as this God is holy. God talks finally to all the Israelites in most of these passages and says that you're going to be holy the way that I am holy. You're going to be a kingdom of priests the way that I am a kingdom of priests. 
That too comes up in the letter to Peter, that we are to be holy. And Jesus himself modifies it and says that we'll be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect. So the first thing that hopefully this summary said is the reason why Leviticus at least has become so vital for me, and I hope a little bit to, for you, is because it gives us the categories to help to understand what Jesus is and who he is and what he does. To really understand why Jesus lives and models life the way he is, why he's asked the questions he is, why he dies the way he does, Leviticus helps fill in a ton of those gaps. It doesn't seem obvious at first. It doesn't have a lot of stories, but it does give a lot of information that allows us to understand the role that Jesus plays in the world. The last thing I want to say is, is the thing that became deepest to me is that it expanded my conception of morality. We talked about this, this quote from Jonathan Haidt, who's done a lot of research, and he says that in the modern world, you know, most of all our idea of morality is fairness and justice, fairness and justice, fairness and justice. But he said that would make us pretty unique throughout the history of the world because most of the world actually had a whole bunch of other categories that they used for morality, food taboos and, and things about the body and all these other things. And so he came up with these five attributes that the moral domain makes up, but we switch it down just to one. He asks, how did we become so weird? And for that, he means Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic and that we've shrunk the moral domain down. So the biggest takeaway for me is that the moral domain that God has for us in the book of Leviticus is more fully expansive than what I ever thought it was. It touches the meat that you eat. It touches how you sit at the table. One of the quotes we used when we started the Holiness Code is, is, is from a different rabbi who said, any God that doesn't tell you what to do with your pots, pans, and genitals isn't worth very much, which he meant... Any God that doesn't get involved in every aspect of your life isn't much of a God. Tells us also how to care for foreigners. Tells us how to care for, for immigrants that come into our land. It tells us how to care for the land. It tells us how to care for our clothes and our houses and our skin. It tells us how to have God reside in the camp with us. It says that justice and fairness matter, but there's a whole lot of other things that make up a moral person. That if you're going to live and reside with this God, you're going to reflect him to the world in the fullness that you can't imagine. So Romans says, therefore, let us... Um, now I went to Hebrews. Therefore, throw us, let us any, everything that hinders us. Uh, I'll open it up to Romans 12. Uh, those therefores, they just run together in my head. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercies, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and pop proper worship. The book of Leviticus did for me was it helped me discover what does it mean to offer our bodies as living sacrifices in a more comprehensive way than I ever thought. That it touches each realm of life so that it can be our true and proper worship. Let us pray.